Hi friends, this is episode 88 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi everybody, I'm so glad you're with us. We are starting a brand new series right here with this session. It's a series on the book of Romans called The Missing Gospel. And this is episode one or session one of The Missing Gospel. And so if you will, go to our website, thebiblelab.com. Make sure you go to the episodes page, go down to the audio and click on The Missing Gospel graphic and go to the first session. Get that study guide because we're going to go through several Greek words. It's very important that you understand there are words that we read and we translate into English and we don't understand that there's multiple words in Greek or Hebrew that we translate as the same word. And there's so much baggage in some of our language, especially as we talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is the wrath of God. What happens when God gets angry? We're going to find out this session. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one, I provoke the wrath of God less than the other people in this room. Oh, my word. You guys are a lot faster in this one than I thought you would be. And I'm seeing predominantly no. I'm seeing about about 75% no, and I'm only seeing about 10% yes. The rest are maybes. Oh, my word. Is this a rough crowd or what? So you provoke the wrath of God a lot, huh? All right, well, that's a, it's a good thing our topic today, uh, one-third of the topic today is the wrath of God. So we're going to talk about what happens when God gets angry. What happens? Because I don't know what church you grew up in, or if you even grew up in the church, but when they talked about the wrath of God when I was a, ki- when I was a kid, oh, be careful, little feet, where you go? Because there was a lot of zapping going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Number two, one of my greatest fears is accidentally embarrassing myself in public. Oh, yes. (laughs) 80%, maybe 85% are saying yes, uh, and about 12% no, and and the rest maybe. (laughs) And Carol says no, because Carolyn, like me, we're used to doing it, and we're used to embarrassing ourselves in public. So on purpose? Oh, my word. See, you guys are, you guys are worse than me because, uh, yeah, one of my greatest fears is accidentally embarrassing myself in public, but like Carolyn, I've kind of gotten used to it. Yes. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Yes. We're going to talk about this because uh, as we read through chapter one of, of Romans, we read it with Western eyes and an understanding of what it means when it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we read it in, in, in a different way than the people in Rome at the time of this writing would have read it. And so we're going to talk about the difference here in, in a moment of what does it mean to be embarrassed and, and what are, religiously, you know, when we fix ourselves all up and dress up and pretend to, to have it all together and come to the Bible lab, um, what are the things we fear are going to show? 
a little, little crack in the, uh, in, in the little facade that, that we all have. Um, and so we're going to talk about the Romans and what they were afraid people would think of them. And it's much different than just a plain reading of Scripture would reveal to you. So we're going to have some fun with that one as well. Number three, our righteousness comes from our expression of faith. Our righteousness comes from our expression of faith. Whoa, I did not expect this. I'm seeing predominantly no. I'm seeing like 70% no, 25% yes, and about 5% maybe. Okay. You know, I didn't expect it, but I'm actually really excited that your response was that way. And some of you may be a, a, a little concerned that I'm excited about it. But the reason why I'm excited about it is we've missed something here in the original language. Uh, something big has gotten lost in translation. We're going to talk about that today. Where does your righteousness come from? Is it your faith or is there another source that makes you righteous apart from you? And when you see what it is, we're going to talk about this kind of at the top of the conversation. When you see it, it's going to mess some of you up. In, in a good way, but you're, you're going to have to rethink a lot of the things that you're doing to feel like you're in right relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that right at the top of our conversation. Number four, when God gets angry, he abandons us. Oh, wow, I even heard a verbal no. And I'm seeing 98% no. I'm seeing a couple of maybes, and thank you, Sharon, for using both the yes and no card at the same time. There's no rule against it, yes. Okay, so predominantly, this community is saying when God gets angry, he does not abandon us. There's just one problem, because three times in chapter one, it says when God gets angry, and depending on which translation you have, it may say, God abandons you. Three times, God abandons you. If you have the NIV, it said, uh, it, it'll say something like, God turns you over, which is the same thing. It's all the same word, which means let you go, abandons you, uh, you're apart from him. So we have to talk about this, because predominantly you're saying, no, that's not what God does. But three times in chapter one, it says, yep, that's what God does. So let's take a look at this because anything in scripture, whenever you're reading scripture and it appears that God is less loving than you would be, there's something lost in translation. So we have to look at how could God abandoning us or letting us go be the most loving response God could possibly give, even more loving than what you could do as a human. And so we're going to talk about that today when we get to that, if you let us, because you're in charge of the conversation. I'm just the guy that's got to try to keep the kittens in the box. <laughs> Number five, society is becoming more bizarre simply because God is not keeping people from becoming morons. <laughs> Do I need to read that one again? Society is becoming more bizarre simply because God is not keeping people from becoming morons. Okay, we are all over the place, and I'm seeing more maybe cards than I've seen all morning, but I am seeing, uh, it looked like about, <laughs> and, and a love it card, thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> yes with a love it card, that's like an, ex you can use the comment as the exclamation point too, you know that. Um, 
So it looked mixed, it, it, but it looked like the same number of yeses as those, maybe 40, uh, no, about 30% yeses, 30% noes, and 40% maybes. And so, uh, and a lot of other cards obviously used within there. Uh, for those of you who might be getting offended that the guy up front used the word moron, don't worry, it's a biblical term, so I can use it. <laughs> and you're going to see toward the end that Paul uses it. And he does, in fact, say, some of you are just becoming morons. And you'll find out that moron is actually a Greek word, and you had no idea you knew Greek. So we're going to talk about that today, too. What happens when God does not keep people doing what God wants people to keep on doing? What is the result of God not being present in people's lives? And what Paul is going to say is you become a moron when God's not in your life. And so we're going to have to see what in the world is Paul talking about here. Because remember, every single aspect of God, you know it's truth when you read the words and see how does this express that God is more loving than you could possibly ever imagine God ever being. And so we're going to take a look at that today. And to get us into the right frame of mind and to understand where Paul wants to go, I want to ask you guys a question just right off the top before we read the first section of Romans, that, uh, Romans chapter 1 that I want to read. And I want to ask you, have you ever thought God was angry with you? And what was that experience like? Have you ever thought that God was angry with you? And what was that experience like? If you're open to share, just raise a comment card. You can raise a question card if you need some clarification here. But just share with us as a community, have you ever felt at some point in your life that God had been angry with you? And it can even be when you were a child. So who's going to share? Yes. I think God's been disappointed with me. I don't think he's ever been angry, but I think I've let him down sometimes. Okay. I'm going to share something with you because I, I love it. I, I love how you've parsed that out. God's been disappointed with you, but you don't think God's ever been angry. I think one of the reasons why we have a hard time, especially those of us who have gone, gone on this five-year journey so far of the Bible Lab, is that we can't imagine God having the human characteristic of someone who is in the act of being angry. Because we always attribute what is the way that someone expresses their anger. It's kind of like I, I work with a lot of people in helping them understand how to, how to predict what's about to happen, and then ultimately say, how are you going to respond to this moment when you will be angry? Because what I tell people is you never lose your temper. You choose your temper. And because when you're angry, you have chosen, this is the way that I respond to people that I'm angry with, and whether that's with verbal lashing or physical lashing or whatever you do to punish that person for you being angry, you have already chosen that. And the challenge is many people throughout time have taken this anger of God. We're going to actually look at the word that's used because there's different words used for anger in, in Greek and, and Hebrew. We're going to actually take a look at the word for anger uh, that Paul uses here. There's actually real significance in what does that mean that is still godly. But the challenge, like you said, you would prefer to say disappointed because when we get to the level of anger, you think of human response to anger, which usually is the lashing out. So we're going to take a look at the wrath of God today. 
And I want you to keep this in mind, what, what she just said, because when you talk about the wrath of God, you have to separate it from human reaction, because God's reaction is much different when he gets angry. And when you see what God does when he gets angry, it's going to change your life. It's going to change your perspective of God, and it's also going to change how you feel about some of the things that you've done in your past where you were fairly convinced that God was angry at you, and some of the consequences that you had to go through, you'll also look at them differently as well. And we'll discuss that in just a moment. Purple Mike, sure. I think our feeling about God when we're children has a lot to do with the way our parents treat us. My father probably didn't have very good modeling to follow, but when he was angry with me, I would disappear. He would not look at me, or if he passed by me, I wasn't there. I just wasn't there for several days. So when I thought that God was angry with me, I felt absolutely abandoned. It took me years and years and years to learn about grace. Yeah. A, a, A lot of us apply what we would do or what we've seen, like what you said, Sharon, our parents would do, which is abandonment. We always have to go back to scripture and say, what does God do when he's angry or like the word you use, disappointed, if that helps you understand a little bit more, disappointed. What happened at the very beginning uh, within the first three chapters of Genesis when Adam and Eve disappointed God? What was God's response? He came in and called, where are you, where are you? Okay, so he didn't ignore them, didn't say, okay, you're on your own. He came in and said, where are you? And physically searched for them. And so we have to think of that. Uh, Red microphone in the back, yeah. Whenever something terrible happens to me, I think I did something to anger God, and I'm being punished for it by that terrible Ah, event. Yes, and part of that is because of the history and and the culture. We basically have genetic passed on from generation to generation from the late 1700s of the Great Awakening, where the theologians of the day, such as Jonathan Edwards, and you you have sinners in the hands of an angry God who goes through statements such as, God is not concerned as that you not suffer too much for what you've done. And like an insect held over the fire, he will not remove you. He will leave you there, making sure that you pay for your sin. So that theology has really, uh, it's, it's like it got its hooks into us in the Great Awakening, and it hasn't let go. And so we see God's wrath as ending up in God's punishment. And I want you to see in chapter one what Paul says is God's punishment. It's going to be really good. Dr. Osborne. Her comment reminds me of some psychologists that, that I remember talking about the problem of how their patients viewed their father. Yeah. And that if there was a negative a reaction about the father, it related to their feelings about God. Yeah. And the terminology had to be changed for people like that because they could never view the father, God the father, in the same way because of a relationship with a negative father. Yeah. I, I, I have heard that a ton and I've talked with a lot of people. There was one individual early on in my ministry who when he would pray, even publicly in front of church, he would say, dear heavenly parent, uh, because he couldn't stand to say our heavenly father because of his experience with his father. I have other individuals who will go as far as saying, dear heavenly mother, uh, I don't think God's ego is so small that he's offended by it, but at the same time as, as we look, 
you know, many of us have, have grown up where we did not have the father figure that we desired, or some of us at all. I didn't grow up with a father figure. And I thank God that my father figure was God, someone who would never leave me or forsake me, because it allowed me to truly have a father who never disappointed. And so as I look at it, there's two different ways we can go as we view God as the father or as a parent. You can apply the human experience to God, or you can say, it doesn't matter what human experience I have, I always have a father. And he knows me, and he wants me to know him. Follow up. Problem. We, um, we were members at Sligo for a long time and had a wonderful pastor there by the name of Rudy Torres. Yeah. And he always said, our creator. Yeah. Because that got around all the problems of, of the, the sexual issues, yeah. father, son, and Holy Spirit, yeah. and what we're talking about. And uh, I've tried to use that actually myself. It just yeah. kind of takes away a lot of those issues. Yeah. Our creator. Yeah. And that's, it, this shows us, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up, because this shows us how much baggage we all bring to the table. And even as someone up front, you got to be concerned about, well, if I say it this way, I'm going to offend this percentage of the crowd. Or if I accidentally say this, someone's going to come up after. Isn't it amazing how much luggage we're, we're schlogging around with us all the time? And isn't it amazing how week by week, God helps us at least take out a few garments and a few things to lighten that luggage so that we'll finally hopefully get to a place to where we realize we don't need this roller bag anymore and we can just let it go and and move on but we all do we we all have this baggage red microphone up here so this goes a little back in my life because i was a kid uh -huh. um, we lived in new york we had a house that had these doors with panes of glass in them and they were between each room so like the living room the dining room it was a sabbath afternoon after church and we were kids, six of us kids, and my sister was running in the house playing, and my mother had said, you know, stop running, stop running. Um, and she may have even said it's the Sabbath. <laughs> but anyway, she's running through the house, and I remember her tripping, and her hand went through the glass pane. And she cut some tendons, and even to this day, doesn't use her hand as well. She was gone for a while in the hospital, and I remember not seeing her. And I think through my mind, I kept thinking, did this happen because it was the Sabbath and she was running in the house, or was it? So now I understand, no, but, but at that time as a child, you wonder, well, if we do certain things, then we're going to pay consequences in those behaviors. Yeah. And it affects your theology and yeah. maybe how you relate to God. That's huge. I, I have seen that over and over and there's a big bunch of chuckles because i'm sure now a bunch of comment cards are about to go up because you just reminded them of an experience where god got blamed for the punishment and the consequences were just because god doesn't want that and i think it's really interesting in in, in my lifetime i've seen so many people and I, i've had to navigate as as being you know a, a pastor the past three decades, navigate between these two worlds where, yes, we want to share what God wants, but at the same time, there's so many people that are taking their wants 
and using the authority of God to make sure you listen to their wants. I was, uh, yeah, I fly a lot. And so I was, I, was, I was on the airplane not long ago and the flight attendant comes up to me and says, uh, we're on approach, we're about to land. And the flight attendant comes to me and says, um, the captain wants the, uh, your window shade open during landing. And I said, the captain wants my window shade open? And she says, yes. And I put it up and she walks away and I'm thinking, I'm in 20D. <laughs> what kind of peripheral vision does this amazing pilot have? <laughs> yeah, we're clear. And I'm thinking in my mind, what's going to happen? Is the captain going to come back to 20D, look out the window, and yell back up to the co-pilot, yeah, yeah, we're still over the houses. Don't pull down on that stick yet. Yeah, it looks like uh, even though I flew like that through that turbulence, that wing went back and forth like a paperclip, it's still somehow attached. <laughs> What's the captain need 20D's op op windshield or window open for? And the reality is the captain didn't need it. The flight attendant needed it open. But for some reason, she wasn't willing to say, hey, I want that open. What she didn't realize is in my character, I'd be like, hey, whatever you need, you're in control of my pretzels and my ginger ale. I'll give you whatever you want. <laughs> we use that next higher authority or the highest authority that we can call upon to tell other people what we want. And that's something we have to keep in mind as, as we're going through this. Uh, Green microphone. Raul, get us back on track. Uh, good morning, Pastor. Good morning. I have a couple of comments. Um, a few months ago, I read a book titled The Faith of the Fatherless mm. by Paul Witts. Yeah. And uh, he um, narrates the life story of uh, the, the historical atheists, uh, Nietzsche, uh, Jean Paul Sartre, Freud, and many others. And uh, he Mm, he narrates this, their story in the light of the faith, the presence, and the absence of their fathers. Um, the, the father, uh, precisely, and not so much the mother. Yeah. And it's interesting that most, if not all, his, uh, these historical atheists have had fathers that were um, rude, aggressive, violent, or died when the child was very, very young. Yeah. So there's a pattern there, yeah. uh, at least for the historical atheists. Yeah. And uh, how did they feel? They feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. That was a common feeling among these atheists, yeah. that they feel ashamed of their father, mm. their fathers, and most likely because of that, they could not accept the figure of a heavenly father. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that in the Bible, um, in, the, in the ancient uh, Israelite culture, and in some places still today, when a, a father had to, well, let me rephrase it. When we correct our children, yeah. when they do something wrong, we say, that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's bad but not so in the ancient culture, Israelite culture. Yeah. They, what, if a father had to correct uh, their children, they would say, shame on you. Yes. 
That was the sentence. Shame on you. That's shameful. And the child will have to react. We find that through the uh, entire Old Testament. For example, Nathan correcting David, saying that's shameful. And and many other examples. But then came Jesus. And Jesus turned the things upside down. We have two supreme examples. One is the encounter with the um, adulterous woman. Yeah, John chapter 8. And then the parable of the lost two sons, or yeah. the two lost sons. Right. Both of them feel, ash- uh, feel shame, but for different reasons. Yeah. And none of them is genuine. It turns out that the father turns the things upside down and say, shame is not an issue here anymore. Right. Grace yes. is the big factor. I, I love that, Raul. Because that's where we're going in these first couple of verses we're looking in Romans chapter 1. Because you're right, society was based on an honor-shame culture. And what Jesus brought was a guilt-forgiveness culture. The two differences. The people in the the day of Paul, it was all about, are you in a state of honor or a state of shame? So let's take a look. I see the other cards, I'm sorry, but we're going to jump into the Bible text here. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it's right there on the top of your study guide, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Verse 17, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, I want you to look at a couple of things here. Raul very, uh, very expertly kind of helped you understand the difference here. But the Roman world was, like I said, an honor-shame culture, um, not a guilt-forgiveness culture. We today in the West mindset, our current culture, looks at a guilt-forgiveness culture. The challenge is we've shifted that from what Paul is talking here as far as guilt and forgiveness too. We talk about guilt as a feeling. Scripture never talks about guilt as a feeling, by the way. It's a state of being. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. Today, we talk about guilt as a feeling, not as a state of being. But whenever you talk about your spirituality, please don't talk it as, as a feeling. Just understand, are you guilty or not? Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of those sins, forgive you from all unrighteousness. You're guiltless because you ask for forgiveness. And so what Paul is trying to help the society in Rome, now he's written this letter ahead of time. He wants to visit the Romans uh, on his way to Spain because he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. And so he sends this letter ahead of time because he doesn't want to waste his time while he's there. He's got a very limited uh, schedule. He knows he's going to spend with them, and he wants to make sure and get this missing piece of the gospel in their minds and in their conversation, and they've already dialogued about it before he gets there to clarify and to polish their understanding of the gospel. And so he wants them to understand because he's heard that they're arguing over things. And because they're honor-shame culture, the things that they've been arguing about is uh, that they're ashamed of each other. Because half of the church is doing one thing and saying it's okay. The other half is doing a, an opposite thing and saying, no, this is okay. And they're calling each other names. Uh, they're calling each other's names like, and yes, I did edit this, circumcised privates. 
Um, and foreskin, they, they use the more technical terms that you use in your doctor offices, yes. Um, but you're either called a name which means circumcised privates or you're called foreskin. And they're using these terms as derogatory or people are calling you, well, you're weak and I'm strong and vice versa. And they're, they're calling each other all different things. Thank God we don't deal with this today where we look and say, you're Democrat and I'm Republican or I'm Republican and you're Democrat or you're liberal and I'm conservative or you're, thank God we don't deal with that today. Could you imagine? So he says there's this missing piece that if you stop looking at that, this honor shame, and look at are you guilty or forgiven, everything changes. Because it's not about your differences of human understanding. It's about the unity that comes with God's viewpoint and his understanding of you. And so if you start understanding him by how he sees you, it changes everything and you will no longer be ashamed of a gospel. Because this gospel has power, Paul says, a power to change the conversation, the, the power to change a society that's gotten themselves so partisan that they can't even have a conversation and they unfriend each other on Facebook because they just can't stand looking at the partisan politics anymore. God says there's a way past it. It's the missing piece in society that if you focus on what's different and how you're stronger than someone else or how they're weaker than you, you will always, always be missing the piece of the gospel that brings us all together and truly accomplishes what Jesus told his, his disciples just before his crucifixion. It's my dream that you all will be one like my father and I are one. Because that's when great things happen. So he goes through that, and then he says, in verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. And I've heard that a lot. In fact, this was one of the verses that changed Martin Luther's life. That as he's going through his penance prayers and trying to figure out, what is this missing piece? I've dedicated my life to God, and I still feel like there's something missing. And he goes through this verse. Now, this, ver this verse is actually quoted from the Old Testament. And you'll see here it's from Habakkuk 2, 4b. The b means the second half or the last part of verse 4. And this is the phrase that was so transformational to Martin Luther himself that changed his perspective, changed his life, and ultimately created a whole denomination, Lutheranism, that believes there's a, there's a missing piece to where the church was at the time in the 1500s. I want you to see something here that most people jump past because you say, okay, the righteous live by faith. So what I got to do is I've got to have more faith or I need to have stronger faith. Okay, so how do I have stronger faith? I choose to believe more. Is it working? Remember, the Hebrew understanding of faith was not believing in things that others see as fairy tales, believing in something you didn't have any evidence or, or proof for. The Hebrew understanding of faith is the same way that we use the word trust today. And is trust given or is trust earned? Trust is always earned. And so if we were to read this the way they heard it, the righteous will live by trust. So some trust has been earned here. Here's the interesting thing. Paul writes 
The righteous will live by faith. But what does Habakkuk chapter 2, last half of verse 4 say? It says it different, doesn't it? The righteous will live by, and who is his? Because it says his faith. God's faith. So the righteous live by God's trust. The right, righteous people live because God trusts them. It's his trust in them. And so what makes you righteous is not because you believe more or because of your trust in God, you are counted righteous when you truly realize God trusts you. It's not based on what you did. We're going to see how Paul takes this over and over again. It's not by works, lest any man boast. It's not by you working harder at it. It's by you realizing what God has already done. He trusts you. He trusts you with his gospel. He says, you be my hands. You be my feet. You be my mouth. You be my voice. Help people understand who I am. I trust you with this. And so... Paul starts out by saying, I'm not ashamed. There's this powerful gospel, and this, this life change comes in when we stop saying, what can I do to make God love me more and to realize how serious I am? And we just stop and say, do I realize how much God trusts me? He counts me as righteous even when I'm a sinner? That changes your perspective. It changes your life, and in that moment, you are right with God. That is what righteousness means, right? You are right. Your relationship, it's all right. It's righteous. And so I'm going to jump down to Romans 1, 18 to 32, because we've got to spend some time talking about these first three words and then three phrases that come after it. We're going to take a look at verses 18 to 32. The NIV reads, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26, and because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, just so you don't feel too smug and think he's just talking about homosexuality, he says, you might be included in this list. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, 
greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're, uh-oh, they're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Uh-oh, do you hear that, kids? They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So let's talk about this. Let's break it down. Verse 18 talks about the wrath of God. I want you to understand something here about the wrath of God. The word here that's used is orge. It's used of God's wrath in Matthew 3, 7, in Romans 1, verse 17, 12, 19. It's used when after healing the man with the withered hand, he observed the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees and looked upon them with anger in Mark 3, verse 5. Some theologians describe orge, or anger, as God's personal emotion with regard to sin. It represents God's abhorrence and hatred of sin. The same authorities note that orge is not punishment of sin, but God's attitude toward it. So let's talk. In your lifetime, has there been a change in the way you view God's wrath? And how has this viewpoint changed or stay the same? And then we're going to go into the abandonment or God turning us over. I want to hear from you. Red, uh, red microphone back there. Yes. So one of the challenges, I think, is for these concepts in the Bible, and for God to get across his heavenly ideas, and he's limited by earthly language and where yeah. we are. Yeah. And um, two things. One, um, we're actually reading this, um, the chronological Bible, and it's really hard with the cool. first five books of the Bible. Uh, yeah. But um, I think God meets us where we are, so he speaks, you know, violence was, they needed a God of great power back in the day. Um, and so he met them where they were and showed them that he did have power before talking to them, them in other ways. And um, I think the same thing goes, I think Raul was pointing out, um, sometimes as a parent you take emergency measures and you have to yell at your toddler mm -hmm. so they won't run in the street, okay? Yeah. So I think yeah. at times God did that maybe with the Hebrews and in Revelation. At the very end, this is your very last chance. Yeah. But secondly, as you've highlighted, um, just in the last year or so, I, I realize the wrath of God is really him letting, letting us go to our own choices. Right. Because I think he loves us so very much, like the loving parent, the great physician. He wants to heal us. He is going to pursue us until there's absolutely zero chance for us. That's that where we're sealed and we're settled in our mind yeah. that we're going to believe what we're going to believe. And many places, especially in the New Testament, talks about that. Yeah. And I think when you take the whole 66 in consideration, that makes a lot more sense to me that this is God letting go. Yes. But we're using human language, human terminology mm -hmm. to try to get across yeah. this concept. And I think that's what the gospel is, is God loves us so much, loves us so much that he gives us the freedom to choose. It's about methods. I, d I love that, Debbie. Um, it just your whole experience of chrono uh, chronology, look at the Bible chronologically, um, that's why you're seeing what you're seeing as well. And, and you use the, the, the expression of how God, you know, we're limited by language and we compare that. We're also limited by experience, you know, our experience of how humans respond when they're angry versus how God responds when he's angry. 
but I love the illustration you also used about the toddler, because if you read the Bible looking at the character of God based on, here's a God who's taking people from spiritual infancy to maturity, it makes sense why God yells at the toddlers, don't do that. Why? Because he's trying to save the toddler, not because he's lording it over the toddler that he's God and the toddler's not. Now, I don't know if you uh, have had friends in the past or, or have friends where they come over to your house and you realize we're never having that family back over to our house again. <laughs> Kids were crawling the drapes and, and jumping on the furniture. And those parents at no time showed the wrath of a parent at the inappropriate activity of these children in a place where they should, they should act better. We want to come back. We want to have a relationship with these people. And because they refused to show the wrath of parenting, there was no disciplinary action going on. And it's you as the non-parent who's there biting your lip going, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to blow. I'm going to say something. I'm going to grab that kid by the wrist and say, we don't jump on our furniture. You know how much I paid for that couch. If you look at the story of God's character from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the reason why some people look at it and say it's a totally different God is because you're a totally different parent to toddlers than you are to teenagers, than you are to your young adult kids, and now your adult kids who you have a completely different relationship to, and now they're yelling at you, don't jump on the furniture, <laughs> if that's what you do. Um, so there's a, a, a complete different expression of the relationship based on whether you're talking to a toddler or whether you're talking to a, a mature adult. Uh, I can't tell. Is that blue, blue microphone? Yeah. In, in response to, direct response to the question, in your lifetime, has there been a change in the way you view God's wrath? Um, yeah. My response is no, uh, in direct response to your question. Yeah. Um, the dictionary definition of wrath is great anger. So mm -hmm. that's an emotion to me. That's not action. That's just emotion without action. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, but my, my understanding of wrath is kind of limited to this concept of there's grapes involved and there's the trampling of the vintage. So my question is, Roy, what is your definition of wrath? What is the definition of orge? Because I'm not just going to say my definition of wrath. Let's look at the definition of Paul's word, wrath, orge, because it's different. I'm going to go over here because I, I, I think you might have an answer to it. So in, in, in a lot of the commentaries, they say that orge actually stands for grow ripe. So it's not a it, it really um, lashing out kind of wrath. It it's a, a, a wrath that kind of holds itself. It's very tempered. Mm -hmm. um, and I've heard it's um, God's firm, settled, perfect hostility towards evil. So I like what you said, Roy, that it's not an action. It's his attitude. And that's what he holds. And, and from the study that I did, it, it seemed like there was three kinds of wrath that there's in, in the world. Yeah. The, the first is the, the, the final wrath, which is going to be the day of reckoning. Yes. Um, then there's going to be... That's when parents get to three. 
One, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. two. <laughs> Final breath is after you've done two and three quarters. And then there's provisional wrath, which yep. is um, God's wrath dealt with uh, the judicial system yes. here on earth. Yes. So when, when you do something wrong and you're incarcerated, mm -hmm. um, there'll be some provisional wrath yes. versus the, 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 the final wrath, mm -hmm. which, you know, Hunter Biden will finally see. And um, <laughs> then <laughs> the last and the, the third and final one is the permissible wrath. And I think that's what um, God is actually showing. There was a really neat uh, quote I, I read from C.S. Lewis, and it said, there's only going to be two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Mm. And so it's God's way of judgment by him allowing us mm -hmm. to do what we want. Yes. And that judgment is probably the worst judgment that can happen because he allows us to, to be depraved and do all the things that, that our heart wants to do. And yes. we hide from... Uh, his his righteousness because we want to be unrighteous. Yes, his his judgment is to give control to people who have no judgment. And I love that. Now, what you just talked about, I want people to understand. There's actually very distinct, different Greek terms for the three different forms of wrath that you just talked about. And orge is very very different, and it is very much like what you just said. Now. Orge is seen as the emotion of God. And like we said toward the beginning, you never lose your temper, you choose your temper. And let's see what happens when God chooses his temper. Because the fact that God gets angry, that people are going a path leading to destruction, actually makes me feel very good. Because you can have no compassion without emotion. And if God was devoid of emotion, while you are walking into a path of destruction and you are going the way that you will be eternally lost, and God does not in any way have an emotional response, there cannot be compassion. And God's great compassion is demonstrated that he gets angry when you're walking in a way that means he might not get to spend eternity with you. Amen. And because of that chance, the very real perspective that you are going down a road that will lead you away from him eternally, where he will not get to love on you forever. It makes him mad. So how does he, in his emotion, this orge, this wrath, this anger, that you're, you're just going down a path of destruction, what does he do? Because I grew up that God zaps people. And oh, let me show you this story about this false fire in the temple, Hophni and Phinehas. What happens to them? What happens when God gets mad? Zap! Paul says, let me tell you what he does now. Because in verses 24, 26, and 28, it repeats, it says and then repeats twice. It says three times. God gave them over is how we translate it in English. But the word can be summarized as abandoned. 
So God gave up or abandoned. What is that? Paradidomai is the, is the Greek word. It means to give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use. In other words, God would not violate man's will and force him to do something he did not want to do. When men persisted in following their totally depraved natures, God allowed them their free reign. So, a couple of things I want you to see here. First of all, God's response when he's mad is to allow you to do what you want to do. I'm not going to fight you. If this is what you choose, I'm not going to fight you. Now, that's a much different picture than what I grew up with and heard from several of you here today. It's not, oh, be careful little feet where you go because the Father up above is going to zap you. It's, oh, be careful where your feet go because God's going to let your feet go wherever you choose to, to walk. He is not a God that is a tyrant who, if you choose to go some other way, he's going to make sure you pay for it. The payment that you pay for walking away from God, you see it right here in verses 22, 25, and 28. Your first punishment for walking away from God is to become a moron. It's right there. It's right there in the Greek, morino. It's our word for moron comes from moros, which is the root word. You become a moron. Verse 25, exchange. The word exchange in 25 is metalasso. It means to exchange one thing for another. Instead of the truth of God, humanity embraces a lie. And he says, I'll let you do it. I'll let you exchange these things. In fact, I'll even tell it to you this way. In verse 28, this word they rejected, the Romans would have heard the same word for, if you were to take a gold coin, and you want to make sure it's a gold coin. You've seen in the old westerns, they bite on the coin, you know, and make sure it's gold. So you bite on the coin. You look at it. Yep, there's my tooth mark. This is real gold. So let's throw it away and let's get this brass coin over here, this fool's gold. That's what I want. Once again, you're a moron. <laughs> and for some reason, the wrath of God, unlike what has been taught in the Great Awakening and in the fire and brimstone sermons, the wrath of God is to say, I want to be with you. I want to be with you eternally. But if you choose not to be with me, if you choose to just go your own way, yeah, it makes me mad. And my response? Go ahead. This is a prodigal son story. The son comes very offensive to the father. says, I want my inheritance now. In other words, I wish you were dead. Father's response? Go your way. Go for it. Jesus tells us again and again, this is God's response when you're offensive to him. I'll let you go do it. But it's my prayer and it's my constant vigil to watch that hillside for you to be walking back because I'm going to run to you, wrap my coat around you and, and, and to reestablish our relationship whenever you turn those feet back around. Carolyn. One of the great issues that I have as a geriatric care manager is consulting with families where they have a parent who has not been declared mentally incompetent, yeah. which means that they have, like God gives us, the choice of what they want to do. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes those choices are not the wisest choices. Yeah. They won't take the medications, or they don't want to give up the driving keys, or <laughs> whatever, whatever. Yeah. And I frequently have to consult with the adult children and say to them, 
they have the right to make bad choices. And I remind them of their teenage years, yeah. <laughs> which they, of course, have forgotten in the dealing with their parents. And uh, did, did you always make book choices when you were a teenager? Well, <laughs> and I said, your dad's got the choice to make a bad, you got, has got the choice to make a bad decision. Yeah. And what we will be here for is to help you to pick up the pieces when the crash and burn occurs. Yeah. And sometimes in the public health field, the crash and, crash and burn has to occur before people will say, "Shouldn't I should have listened to that bridge out ahead sign. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard it said, um, success at uh, four years old, three years old is uh, no longer wearing diapers. Uh, success at, uh, at nine years old is not wet in the bed. Um, success at 16 years old is keeping the car keys and success at 80 years old is keeping the car keys and <laughs> success at 90 is not wet in the bed and <laughs> success at 95 is not wearing diapers. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. May we all be blessed by that word. Um, <laughs> you call your clients toddlers with car keys. I love that. What does it tell you about your God, that you serve a God whose response in his anger is to allow you to do whatever you want to do, to grant you your freedom, to not force you into a relationship? What does it tell you about your God that his expression of anger is to give you your freedom? You got to ponder that this week because this is not the God that's presented in many churches and has not been presented in many churches for generations. What a different God who says, Your righteousness is based on my trust in you. It's a different God. And I, I, I just pray that God brings someone into your, your walk this week that needs to hear this and that the Holy Spirit speaks through you to help them understand when God gets angry, the wrath of God results in God letting you do what you want to do. But don't do it because you'd just be a moron. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how for so many generations we've just attributed human characteristics to God. And I can't wait to hear the conversations about how the Holy Spirit brings people into your life to share this beautiful message that Romans chapter one really is. Now, next episode, we're gonna go to Romans chapter two, and we're gonna talk about the justice of God. How is God just? And how can he be just and at the same time seemingly not punish some people and punish others we've got to find out so i hope you come back for our next episode thank you for listening to the bible lab podcast if you're planning a trip to southern california make sure to reserve your vip seats in the bible lab by emailing us at info at programs are recorded each saturday at 10:30 a.m we hope to see you soon until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.